0: Hello, and welcome to The Double Double. My name is David Dixon, and it is Sunday, September 20th, here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well. They're staying safe and healthy during this really difficult time. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded last week with the head men's basketball coach at Whitworth University, Damian Jablonski. Really fun interview. Uh, The Whitworth team is extraordinary. They've been one of the best Division three basketball programs this whole past decade, really fun conversation. And I was really happy to talk to and, and hear just what Coach Jablonski and just what that whole program has has been able to do this the last 10 years. They are extremely successful, win so many games, uh, so it was a really fun conversation. But before we get to that, uh, just wanted to mention the tragic uh, passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Friday night. She passed away at the age of 87 from pancreatic cancer. Obviously, a really, really sad story. She was a trailblazing icon, a legend, just one of the most important and recognizable people in our entire country. And what she has done, not just for everyone in this country As a Supreme Court justice But specifically what she has done For women in this country Cannot be Understated or overlooked In any way So To edit, to anyone who is grieving This loss And specifically to the Family and friends Of Ruth Bader Ginsburg I uh, just want to give Our deepest thoughts And sympathies and prayers To, to all you guys During this grieving process And for anyone who is motivated by this or scared about what this may mean politically, vote. It is so important this year, especially every year it's important, but this year especially if you go to iwillvote.com and you will just learn, depending on whatever state you're in, how to register, where your polling location is, how to vote by mail if you want to vote by mail, how to vote early. All the information you need, depending on what state you're in, is there. So I couldn't couldn't recommend it more. Uh, it is I Will Vote. Uh, it's a great website, and it's a great, great resource. So coming up, I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back is my interview with Coach Damian Jablonski. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head men's basketball coach at Whitworth University, Damian Jablonski. A native of Montana, he went to Gonzaga as an undergrad and went on to work for the Ford Motor Company as an engineer. He then began his coaching career at the high school ranks in 2005, working at Lavanya Franklin High School in Michigan. He joined the college game at Oakland University as a grad assistant and then video coordinator in, in 2007. After three years at Oakland, he joined the staff at Lehigh for one year before coming to Whitworth as an assistant coach in 2011. In his eight years as an assistant, the team won an outstanding 194 games. He took over for Matt Logie in the summer of 2019 in his debut season as head coach. Whitworth went 23 and six and advanced to the Sweet 16 before the coronavirus pandemic canceled the NCAA tournament. I'm thrilled he's taking the time to join me today, Coach. How's it going?
1: It's going great. I appreciate you having me. Um, Such a fun time of year Um, for a lot of us, even if we're in the middle of a pandemic and things Mm -hmm. aren't normal. uh, You know, Whitworth has students back on campus, so we have a a kind of a hybrid like a lot of schools have. So it's nice to to start thinking about the season and just seeing our student-athletes around campus and and being able to uh, enjoy being together again. So I appreciate you having me. It's a fun time of year.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking the time join me and and you kind of mentioned it so so let's just start there this fall every school is dealing with the pandemic in their own way some fully online some fully in person hybrid some mix of both seeing a lot of creativity what is the quick summary the quick rundown of what Whitworth's plans are for this fall semester
1: sure you know um we welcomed uh, everyone back on campus at, at Whitworth you know that's traditionally um you know, going to be your first two years of undergrad, um, that primarily live on campus, but we have, um, we have the majority of our classes are offered, uh, in person, but also, like I mentioned, it's hybrid so that we can accommodate students that, um, that can't, or, or, um, you know, don't, don't feel comfortable coming back in person. And, um, as well as, you know, some, some professors that have chosen to do theirs entirely online so like i said we're kind of a hybrid but um you know our dorms are full and Mm -hmm. uh you know we're navigating through these first few weeks with uh you know new new protocol for how we operate socially and um you know make sure that we we maintain that the health and safety is a priority of our of our students
0: and so what is the the basketball program's plan for the fall? How are the players approaching this fall in terms of workouts, pickup? Is that even allowed to happen? And and also it's it's as a former player, it's it's hard to sometimes go through the summer and fall. Traditionally it's we gotta be ready by October fifteenth. Now you don't really have a, a set start date. So just how are so how's the team approaching it?
1: Sure. Um well with adaptability for one mm-hmm. thing, because yeah. you know, things things can change and they have changed. Um, As we've gone along, you know, planning throughout the summer looks a lot different than where we actually are right now. Um, But the the short of it is our conference decided um, that we wouldn't have competition during this year, so um, the earliest we could begin actually competing against outside competition would be um, January 1st, and and they're still going through um, figuring out what a schedule might look like, and obviously there's a lot that might be decided between now and then based on how the coronavirus is going. But, um, currently, um, again, based on our state protocol and the institution's protocol, you, our players can't have pickup on campus. There's no five on five basketball going on. Um, you know, we do have the ability to, uh, get student athletes in the weight room with, a, uh, you know, some restrictions, masks and, um, and pretty, uh, low numbers in that space. And um, and then, you know, the plan is that the NCAA moved their uh, start date for practices up to October 1st. So it's, like you mentioned, traditionally October 15th. Now on October 1st, we have the ability to um, get our players in the gym and begin practices, which, based on our state protocol, is really just um, like skill workouts. It's mm-hmm. five five on O, uh, social distancing, you know, that kind of thing. But at least we can get in the gym and players can, uh, get to work again. So we're excited about that. I think our guys are excited about that. Obviously, you know, you lose kind of the fun of the fall, which I think for a lot of student athletes, a lot of basketball players anyways is getting in the gym and playing open gym, and you know, running with your new teammates. And yep. that's a lot of fun. So it's, it's different. Um, but like I said, our guys are adapting and uh, they're still optimistic about the opportunities that we are going to get.
0: And I'm just curious about how you have approached it from, you know, obviously the, the disappointment of the spring when, when the season got canceled due to the pandemic. But that whole spring and summer, not a lot of recruiting events, not a lot of knowns about will guys even be able to come back to campus and, and when this whole season would be able to even have a, a potential start date. How did you approach this off season? Uh, just mentally, uh, given that coaches are creatures of habits, things happen according to a schedule in, in, trad- in traditional years. And this year, everything was thrown out the window and there was no uh, calendar events that you could check off of week tournament this weekend, guys move in now. It's like, how did you approach the summer and, and uh, this fall?
1: Well, I'd, I'd love to say, you know, I did it grace all gracefully but uh but the reality was you know i think for everyone the fact that our schedules have been thrown off so much it was really tough it was really tough to deal with mentally at times and even if cerebrally i could say you know i this is what i need to do now um you know there there are spells where emotionally it's not as easy to deal with so um i think early on you know obviously i was disappointed that we didn't get to finish the tournament but given the fact that, you know, we gave our all and we did our best on all of the opportunities that we had. And, you know, we, we didn't end on a loss. Mm -hmm. Um, surprisingly I could, I could go to rest at night, you know, pretty easily when we, when we first ended, you know, there was disappointment, a little bit of shock, but, but, um, you know, we did what we could and everyone was dealing with this. Um, as we went forward and our, my routine was thrown off so much, you know, um, obviously there's some blessings that go along with that. I have a family and I got to spend more time with my family. And so you do that. But then when you don't get to go out on the road, when you're not sure what your next task is, um, and you don't have the same deadlines, um, you know, it's easy to just kind of spin around a little bit. And so Mm -hmm. admittedly, I think I, I struggled emotionally for a bit in the mid summer. Um, and, uh, and then, And 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 I say that candidly because I really do think a lot of people dealt with that, you know. And I would be, I would be silly to put up a front and say, oh, you know, this has just been great and I've handled this perfectly. Um, But uh, as we got closer, and and you know, there was some light at the end of the tunnel for me right now. That being like, well, we get to we get to be back on campus. Um, Then it was easier to start planning for you know what it is that we do have. Obviously, recruiting has been interesting. You know, you don't get out and and have the opportunity to do all the live evaluation, which makes it difficult. There's a lot more evaluated on film. There's a lot more, um, you know, uh, just taking recommendations of coaches or recruiting lists. And and I think that makes it a little bit difficult because there's so much to be said for seeing a player live. Yeah. Um, But uh, again, honestly, it's maybe a blessing. I think I've talked to a lot of coaches that feel the same same way. You know, the us using Zoom for so many things or whatever kind of online, you know, video chatting, um, you you know, integrating that into our recruiting is kind of like, well, why weren't we doing this before? This is such a great opportunity to be able to talk with student athletes and families when they're, uh, you know, not on campus. So, you know, trying to utilize those things as as we go along and. I think that they will continue even, you know, when we're out of the the, the pandemic stuff. So that's actually kind of been a, a, a great uh, learning experience for, for me as a coach in the, the utilizing that resource.
0: And, and all summer you're preparing mainly just for the pandemic and how you're going to deal with staying safe from the virus. And then in the last few weeks, these major, major, terrible wildfires have erupted all over the West Coast and you have like the smog and just like that orange burnt, burnt sky in San Francisco and California parts of Oregon and Washington how is the air quality out there Or is is the wildfire uh out in in your part of Washington or and is that affecting the day-to-day life of students at at Whitworth
1: Unfortunately it did this has been uh you know we so there are some fires in washington but mainly the ones in oregon are the closer ones that have been um pretty devastating and created a a whole lot of terrible air quality so we started classes you know a week ago and the smoke rolled in from that and i want to say sunday night this last sunday night and our air quality got to on the the index they use like over 400 it was absolutely terrible so exactly what you see in those pictures that you you mentioned from you know um from california and so we actually had to cancel classes at the beginning of this week because the air air quality was you know at a dangerous level um again luckily we have some adaptability given the hybrid stuff so online stuff was able to go so that was Again a blessing honestly that we were set up for that um but we're clearing up we started back up on uh yesterday with some classes so hopefully uh we don't have another another rollin of that but it's definitely we've been affected by that as well and uh you kind of just at some point throw your hands up in the air yeah. and go, well what are you gonna do you know I heard someone say uh, I can't wait for the for it to snow so that we can you know get rid of all these these fires, but in 2020, I'm afraid that, uh, snow will be flammable.
0: So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a crazy year with so many things out of your control and just something else out of your control that people always talk about is just the family you were born into and, and, uh, and just where you grew up. So I mentioned at the top, you're from Montana. What was that like growing up in Montana and just, uh, how did you first fall in love with the game of basketball?
1: Sure. Well, I, I, a little bit more complex than that. I was actually born in metro Detroit so okay, I lived Detroit. in, in uh, that area until I was 12 um, and then we moved to Montana so I, you know I moved from uh, you know metropolitan area to a very rural area and um, you know kind of through all that you, you asked how did, I, how did I you know fall in love with the game well when, when, when we lived in, in metro Detroit my dad was a middle school and high school coach so I grew up in a gym, going to his practices, trying to get in his drills or playing in the bleachers while he's, you know, practicing. So for a very young age, basketball was really always my passion. And, uh, you know, we moved to Montana. My dad didn't coach while we were there, but um, basketball was, again, my passion and um, meant a whole lot to me. I had a good high school career, but a small-time high school career and, uh, you know, wasn't a recruited athlete. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I when I graduated, you know, I... I would have really had to try and seek out an opportunity and, uh, I had done well academically, was able to get some sco- uh, academic scholarships to Gonzaga. and really felt like that was the right fit for me. So I went to Gonzaga to study, uh, engineering mm-hmm. and, uh, it's funny you look back, but all of those things, um, things kind of fall into place and you don't really know it at the time. You know, right. I'm at Gonzaga in the late
0: nineties, yeah. which was, which was right when, they really reached their
1: national prominence. You know, Man, when I was the a map. junior was the year, was the year they were, uh, they made the elite eight run and beat Florida on the tip in and played Yukon in the in elite eight. And, you know, I, as a student, I drove from, from Spokane down to Arizona, you know, like 24 <laughs> hours to get the games.
0: That's and, awesome. You know, a lot
1: of those guys were guys that I was friends with. And, mm-hmm. you know, I lived in the dorm right next to Richie from and Casey Calvary was a, floor below us and you know so small school you I look back it was just another opportunity to really stoke my passion and keep me involved in the game even mm-hmm. if it was as a fan yeah. and um, so fast forward I got a, a job at an opportunity at Ford Motor Company as an engineer. I moved back to Metro Detroit which was kind of a coincidence but maybe why I was willing to you know pick up and go back across the country because I had some familiarity with it. And, um, and I worked as a, a, product development engineer at Ford. I designed brake systems, um, like analog brakes and, um, mm-hmm. traction control and, 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 you know, was having a good experience, but it wasn't my passion. And as right. I kind of, uh, went along, you know, I find myself writing down plays, mm-hmm. watching games and writing down plays and I'm not even coaching, you right. know, so I'm like, <laughs> I don't even have a team. So I got involved with uh, the high school close by, and then eventually I said, I want to give this a go. I want to do this full time. And so left my job and ended up getting uh, an opportunity at Oakland as a graduate assistant. and That was kind of the start of my, uh, my college coaching experience.
0: Yeah, so I want to go back to when you were in college at Gonzaga. You mentioned mm-hmm. 1999, make the Elite Eight as a 10 seed. They're on the map. Just what was that the the vibe and the energy like on campus watching your team as you said your friends, your classmates go on this Cinderella run i i i mean like c- could you go anywhere on campus and not talk about the basketball team
1: no it it was it was insane it was a huge it was just such a important part of literally everyone's experience at Gonzaga during that time frame uh, mm-hmm. there was so much community pride. And, you know, I said, as students, we drove 24 hours down there and, yeah. you know, painted our faces and, you know, <laughs> acted crazy. And, and I think the passion involved with that, you know, you really felt like you were a part of, you were a part of that experience. You were you know, a player in it, you know, not a yeah. literal player, but, uh, you were playing a role in it. And, um, you know, I, again, when, like, when they went on the, when they won the sweet 16 game, I was in the arena Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, this is before most people, anybody really had cell phones. And I, I called my dad from a payphone, and I think we both cried about <laughs> in like, excited. That's awesome. And so, so yeah. And back on campus, um, I had friends that didn't make the trip. Literally everyone from off campus, wherever converged to the center of campus, uh-huh. and basically, we're there for like three hours, just celebrating in the middle of campus, like just yes. full of students. So, just an incredible experience, and really a testament to what how college athletics can bring together a community. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, it, it's it was pretty awesome, um, you know. And like I said, important part of my college experience was just being a fan of of the basketball team at that time.
0: So, you mentioned you you, you go after graduation, you're working as an engineer for Ford, an iconic American company. But during that time, you, you said you're jotting down plays, watching games. How are you staying involved with basketball? Who are you watching? Were you watching the Pistons because they were really good during that time? Won the two thousand four NBA championship. Were you watching Gonzaga when they had Adam Morrison? Like, how are you staying involved and uh, with with just the game of basketball?
1: Yeah, all of those things. I'll, I'll rewind really quick. When I, I said when I was a kid in Metro Detroit. The last two years before we moved were the bad boy. Oh wow, yeah. Two. So I've got that, you know, as a kid again, mm-hmm. stoking my passion. Then I go, you know, in college, I've got Gonzaga. Then I go back to Metro Detroit, and you got the Pistons with Chauncey Billups and Rip Hamilton, and you know, again, winning uh, you know a world championship. And but I back then, yeah, I watch it. I was watching college games all the time. I'm going to, uh, and I started before I got in high school. I started just being. Uh, a high school hoops junkie too. Mm-hmm. I'd drive around and go to high school games all the time and watch Draymond Green or, you know, whoever was in the Metro, you know, Detroit, um, you know, high school uh, circuit at that time and right. just uh, watching games um, and being a junkie and knowing knowing, you know, what good players were out there. So, again, looking back, it's so obvious, you know, I needed to be involved because I had right. such a passion for it. Um, but that was a, you know, a good couple of years where I was just, just doing that kind of thing. And, and honestly, it's interesting when I first got the, the job with my, with the high school that I got involved with, Lavonia Franklin, I had gone, I had decided I wanted to go, you know, learn some, you know, more in-depth coaching. So I, I went to one of those championship basketball clinics that like Nike puts on and it was down in Pittsburgh. So I drove like five hours down to Pittsburgh and, uh, you know, the, it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday deal with, right. you know, a good dozen, 15 coaches, uh, you know, a lot of really great college basketball coaches. And I go there and kind of just when you're hanging out in a coaching, you know, community, people, even if you don't know each other, they're, hey, coach, how's it going? And right. everyone's calling each other each other coach. And I kind of felt like a little bit of a fraud. I don't even have a team. I'm not really a coach. You know, I'm just down there. I want to learn. But the, the crazy thing, and this is where for me, you know, faith is important to me. And I feel like it was a God thing, but I'm there. I don't know anybody Friday, Saturday, literally all the way till Sunday afternoon or late morning. And there's a break and coaches are kind of interacting. And I see somebody walk by me that has a, La- a Livonia Franklin wow. t-shirt on. So it's literally the high school coach at the high school that is a less than two minute walk from where I live. And so I introduced myself and uh, I ended up becoming his assistant that year. So it, it's it's amazing how things like that end up end up working. Um, and that's how I got my first opportunity, you know, being a part of a high school program.
0: And now once you got that opportunity, you're at practice every day. You know, high school kids can be sometimes difficult to work with a lot of different maturity levels. They're going through a lot of stuff if this was a movie coach, there'd be like one day at practice, some montage where someone would dive on the floor for a loose ball and you'd be like, this is it. This is, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I love this. When did you kind of know during that, that season or, or that experience at Livonia Franklin that you decided, Hey, this is what I want to do. Was there a moment or was it just a a collection of moments during that, that whole time?
1: Yeah, I think kind of a collection. If I, if I, if I really look back, I think, you know, when I'm going to work and I'm dividing my mental time between making a practice plan and how can we get better and, you know, designing a break system. And I recognize that I, it's difficult to compartmentalize, mm-hmm. you know, it's difficult to, to just turn, turn on the work mode and turn off the basketball mode. Right. And, uh, you know, it took, because there's a lot of risk involved with what I did. I, you know, getting the, I didn't, I didn't make, and I, I definitely still underachieve financially based on what I could potentially do in an engineering career. But, um, you know, I left a very good salary with benefits and all that, um, to really not make any money for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to talk myself, Even though I have a very supportive wife, you know, um, you know, supported what i wanted to do and my passion and following that you know i had to talk myself into actually taking the action a little bit
0: if that makes sense yeah for sure now after those two years of high school you leave ford you mentioned you go to oakland university as a graduate assistant and just for any listeners oakland university is in michigan correct
1: correct it is auburn hills they're basically right about a couple minutes from the palace of auburn hills where the pistons used to used to play
0: yeah oakland university is like manhattan college here in new york where manhattan college is actually in the bronx it doesn't make any sense but so you're a graduate assistant coach for the people who don't understand what that means every coach has a different set of responsibilities on the staff and it can vary from from school to school what were your responsibilities as the graduate assistant at oakland and then also the responsibilities once you got promoted to being the video coordinator
1: yeah um oh boy Um, a lot of logistics,
0: um,
1: Uh. whether, whether it's, uh, you know, coordinating gym times, I did travel. I did, I was actually responsible for running all the travel when we were, you know, on the road, which we got some funny stories from, but, uh, (laughs) um, you know, video editing, making sure practice set up, um, tracking different, depending on whatever coach, you know, wanted, but tracking different stats, I tracked plays and efficiencies for our plays, um. Really, just trying to take care of the players, doing academic monitoring, class checks, um, just a whole variety of things. Honestly, right. and then and then when you go into the video coordinator role, at Oakland at the time, you know we have a, a a great uh, director of ops, and um, she doesn't necessarily handle some of the basketball things that some mm. of the director of ops do, but she's a great coordinator of a lot of things. So. In the video connect coordinator role, I think I handled a lot of the, a lot of the basketball related director of ops type. Gotcha. You know, uh, uh, things so um, running camps and, um, you know, uh, coordinating recruiting mailouts and all all of the all of the different things that go into that. So.
0: So Damian Lillard was on the JJ Reddick podcast back. When the bubble started towards, towards the end of July, and he something really interesting was that he, once he got into the NBA, started watching so much film that it just greatly just improved his basketball IQ, and he started picking up things and, and started using film to figure out things that he could exploit versus you know just watching it to watch. Now that you're fully ingrained in the basketball world, you're a video coordinator, coaches say this too, when they watch hours and hours and hours of film, they just can process and learn so much. How did your basketball watching habits change or evolve while at Oakland work? Because you could say, hey, sometimes it's got to get the edits done for this matchup or, or, for, or for this assignment, but then also you have this library almost of unlimited film to watch. So just how did you, your, I, I don't want to say basketball IQ, but just your, your habits change when you were doing that role at, at Oakland?
1: Yeah, uh, I want to answer that, but I'm going to tell you a quick anecdote because mm-hmm. you mentioned Damian Lillard. When I got to uh, when I got to Whitworth, I think it was it was actually the first year, and um, at the time, our video like we weren't on Synergy yet, which people mm-hmm. don't know Synergy is yeah. a, basically a service that breaks down a bunch of films, so you can go on it's an online platform, you can at a click of a few buttons, you can you can get what you want to see, but back then we would get DVDs. And we would put them in our editing. We'd have to cut up the the you know film for into the, into the clips that we wanted to show. So I'm yeah. I'm doing recruiting or scouting, and I'm watching. Uh, it's actually Lewis and Clark, which is one of the teams in our our league who's in Portland. And I'm fast forwarding through the timeouts. Okay, and in the timeouts, they keep panning up into the stands, and they're showing these two guys who look like. About college, college, it was like college athletes, uh-huh. and they keep dancing to the music, like they're doing these funny dances to the music. <laughs> and so I, just out of fun, fun, I like started clipping those. Okay, throughout this game because they were cracking me up. So I put them together in an edit, and we used it as like a kind of light in the mood pregame edit right. uh, for the game. Well, at the time, you know, the guys laughed at it. I pulled it out the next year again just cuz it was it was they enjoyed it so much and somebody goes you know who that is that's Damian Lillard
0: oh my god it was
1: Damian Lillard his buddy was on he must have been at Weber and they were probably playing mm-hmm. portland play, playing, uh portland yeah and he was at the game his buddy played for Lewis and Clark so him and his other friend were in the stands so he's in the middle of his campaign for rookie of the year or whatever and they that's incredible. got this edit of him acting goofy at a <laughs>
0: That's incredible
1: basketball game. It was hilarious.
0: (laughs) That's awesome.
1: But to answer your question about how the habits change, I mean, I look and I hope this is true 20 years from now, if I'm still coaching that you look back on where you were a year before and you're like, I didn't know the half of what I thought I knew about this game. Mm Um, you know, because, uh, you know, when I'm at Oakland, like one of the things I started doing was, uh, we're pre-scouts. So I would, I would scout an opponent and put it in like a really abbreviated format Mm -hmm. for a coach or for the assistant coach long before we actually were going to play them. Right. Um, so that was one of, that was one of my exercises that really, you know, where you start looking in depth, um, at, at how a team, you know, plays and what their system is. And I, and I think that, I think it's really important to look at, uh, at least for me and my growth as a coach, like when you break things down, like it's a research project, uh, which is really what scouting is, um, you just start to, you know, piece together, you know, how philosophies work and what people are really doing and what actions are actually, um, you know, being implemented both offensively and defensively. So um, it's funny, I, I think, you know, as a fan of Gonzaga at that time, you know, I would watch college basketball and sometimes I would, turn off the coach and just turn on the fan mode. There's kind of like different modes. Mm -hmm. Now it's a lot harder to ever just put on a fan mode. Right. Almost always watching the game as a
0: coach. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So skipping ahead a few years, you leave Oakland, you go to Lehigh where you're an assistant. And then one year at Lehigh, you you come and join Whitworth as an assistant coach. They're a really successful program. You're back now in Spokane where, uh, where Gonzaga is. Where one of your responsibilities was to coach the forwards and the and the post players. I'm always curious as a as a forward myself. Just what are some of the things that that you emphasized or you think is important to helping coach uh, post players? Because I because I think that so many people don't necessarily uh, understand how to help coach post players because not everyone can be six foot eight and taller and and have that playing experience.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think for us, one thing was, you know, I just tried to create a brotherhood of the posts for Mm -hmm. one thing. You know, we used to, we used to tease that, uh, you know, when we break up post perimeter that the perimeter players were just playing in a sandbox, we were doing the real work. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, I think, I think it's, I tried to simplify things, um, you know uh, you know, playing hard and playing gritty and playing tough. And from an offensive perspective, keeping things pretty simple. Mm-hmm. You know, can you, if you're playing as a back to the basketball player, you know, can you get to the middle and get to your hook or get to the middle and have a counter, you know, and, um, just trying to keep things simple and, uh, and focusing on, like I said, on the, the, the toughness, uh, that goes along with having to be a banger if you're, you know, playing down low in in the college basketball environment. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, some of it is cultural. I guess is what I'm saying, and mentality-wise, and and, mentality wise and, uh, and the other part of it, like I said, I, is really just trying to keep things simple because I think in today's day and age, uh, post players don't get a lot of post training. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's trying to in high school, and you know, you know, club basketball. It seems like it. You know, everybody's trying to develop their skills as a perimeter player even if you are succeeding. I understand the value in that. I'm a coach that, that does believe in spreading the floor and oftentimes playing in a five- out kind of situation. Um, but I think you have to if you have the talent as a, you know as a big you have a big body, you kind of should develop your skills from, from a foundation up, which mm-hmm. means do those fundamental big things that a guard can't do, do those well first mm-hmm. and then expand your game out.
0: So, it's interesting. Hopefully that answers your question. No, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting that that you mentioned the toughness aspect of because I think so many times people think of the physical toughness of being able to take like the hits and, and dealing with the fouls and just like the physical part of play, and That's very important. There's no doubt about it. But I also think that it's the the mental toughness aspect of being a low post player is something that gets uh, overlooked sometimes of dealing with the fact that you're going to feel like you're open all the times and guards are going to miss you a lot, so you always have to feel like you're not getting enough touches. And then also, the refs sometimes don't give you as many calls just with the way that the game is called nowadays. There's such an emphasis on hand-checking on the perimeter that sometimes it feels like they let a lot of stuff go on the inside. How do you, or or how did you help the the post guys at Whitworth improve their their mental toughness aspect of being able to just stick with it even if they're frustrated or just... Uh, upset about different things going on in that game.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think universally it goes for whether you're post or perimeter, as far as just dealing emotionally with playing through, through calls, through physicality, or through missed calls, and um, those things that you you can't control. You know, control the controllables, and a lot of times that's what your res- emotional and physical response is to whatever occurs. Um, so you know, again, I think, I, I think it was, um, a lot of having pride and recognizing that, you know, you, as a, as post players in our program, you, you just play through things. Um, mm-hmm. and you have a great responsibility too. um, you know, I, I honestly believe that most of the time your five, man, he's, he's going to be the quarterback of what you do defensively. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who has to know, um, almost more than most of the other players. You know, I know we talk a lot, we, put a lot of responsibility on point guards. Um, you know, you talk about point guards a lot of times being the extension of the coach, but it's, it's usually the five man who's really going to be, that needs to be the extension of the coach on the defensive end because so many times, uh, they're the ones that really see what's going on.
0: And, yep, you know, in you the wall screen
1: coverage, they're the ones who, yeah, exactly. They're in front of the rim and can see all, all the other nine players, you know, simultaneously. So, um, so, uh, you know, mentally, I think it's also giving them responsibility and, and, um, and helping them to realize their importance on the team because all too many times it seems like uh, they kind of get downplayed uh, in, maybe in the general media as for what kind of importance they really do have, especially on the defensive end of the basketball court.
0: I, I totally agree with you. And while you were there at Wilworth as an assistant, you guys were phenomenal as I mentioned at the top you won like you won 194 games your worst season in quotation marks worst was you guys went 21 and 6 uh a mm-hmm. 20 win season was you know a bad one when you guys didn't make the NCAA tournament and i think there's an east coast bias in the way college sports are covered at all levels d1 down to d3 mm-hmm. especially just with the way that the division 3 uh tournament and just the, the way that it works about travel and just you guys aren't going to fly to uh New York City to play the, the, the top East Coast teams the way that uh Gonzaga or and, and Arizona can. Is there a little extra motivation uh for, for you guys in your program that when you get a chance to play a team from the Midwest or the East Coast to to prove that, that West Coast teams can compete and are, you know, some of the top teams in the country?
1: Yeah, you know, I think so. Um, you know, last year that You, you mentioned uh, missing the tournament a couple of years ago. You know, we had a phenomenal team. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, based on the metrics, well, we didn't win our automatic qualifier. And based on some of the metrics, you know, we were just outside. There's It's very difficult. And I understand there's other teams that, based on the metrics, had, uh, you know, res, resumes that would put them uh, above us. Um, but it's very difficult to actually meet those just because it's hard it's hard to play like you said that you know to have the resources to to go play uh, you know a super challenging non-conference schedule when you're out here on an island and it, it's not a matter of getting in a bus and busing 30 minutes or an hour or two hours my closest conference opponent is three hours bus ride away right and that's only one of those you know that's my closest conference opponent so
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh so last year for example you know we were able to uh take two trips out to the Midwest and we played at, uh, at Wash U, um, in a tournament we played at, uh, Worcester in a tournament. Um, and we were also able to get St. Thomas to come out, uh, and play us. So, you know, whenever we get those opportunities, um, you know, we're trying to make the most of it. Um, we haven't always won them, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think we're extremely competitive and, um, you know, and like I said, we're gonna we're gonna when we do get them, maybe have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. There's no doubt because, uh, as you mentioned, it's natural to feel that there is some East Coast bias, and you know, understandably so. The number of teams on the East Coast is a, a lot greater than what you have out here on the West Coast.
0: Mm-hmm. And then also, once you get to the NCAA Torrent, just for the way that it's set up with the regional pods and the 500 yep. mile rule, you guys. Have made the NC tournament a lot, especially this this last decade almost every single time you guys are either on the road at Whitman or another team on on the west coast, or mm-hmm. you're hosting where all the, the where the four best teams on the west coast are coming to face you who, if they weren't on the west coast, could be hosting their own pods uh if they were an east Coast team. Just what is it like as a coach knowing that? You deserve to host these games based on a record and just how talented and how good you guys are. But the rules and the economics say that, you know, you have to either play on the road or that you have to play, especially just the last few years, Whitman, who's like the number one team in the country, in the second round when everyone else is like, oh, we'll deal with them in the final four.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's – I mean, there. you mentioned economics. It's all about economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely – it doesn't always feel fair because it honestly isn't fair, you know? And again, I don't say this disrespectfully, but I believe that year, like a couple of years ago, we played Whitman in the second round and we were both like top 10 teams, yeah. top 15 teams, you know, and we're the two representatives from our conference. We have to play in the second round. You know, meanwhile, another conference on the East coast, I won't mention you, but it'd be very familiar to you Yeah, the next uh, might have, might have five, Five teams in the in the tournament, and all five of them could wouldn't meet until no, nobody could meet until the Sweet Sixteen. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's 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 based on economics and geography. You know, and so really to answer your question, you know, it is what it is. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it's frustrating, but there's absolutely nothing we can do. We can try and advocate, and we can hope that um, the NCAA will commit more resources to to you know help spread that out and alleviate some of those things that i think the west coast teams you know sometimes get stuck in and they did that this year um, mm-hmm. actually you know we got sent to texas uh whitman got sent to um minnesota i believe yeah and the the california representative Pomona pitzer went to emory so they were able to do it this last year Which I think all of us as coaches and student athletes like we appreciate because we'd rather not not only from a we'd rather not play a team for the fourth time yeah you know especially when it it is you know maybe a matchup that should be in a Sweet 16 or Elite Eight if we were actually bracketing the tournament based on seeding
0: right yeah now in the summer of 2019 uh, longtime head coach Matt. Logi, he goes to Division Two, and you are promoted from the associate head coach to now the new head coach for a team that's had so much success the last decade. You also, during that last decade, are also improving your basketball uh, IQ and just also just not just basketball IQ, but just you're now putting together things that that you want to try. That if it's if once you finally get a chance to to really coach your own team. How do you balance trying to implement your ideas and what you think could help take the team to the next level, also not veering too far away from just what has helped made Whitworth be the most successful and winningest program in all of Division Three this this past decade?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question, and you know, part of it is part of my response even uh, looks back to lessons that I learned all the way back at Lavonia Franklin when I was coaching, which is. Um, maybe don't change too much when you've got something going on that's good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So my strategy last year was, uh, to look at the 15 to 20% change that I could make. And even that might seem high, high given our success, but change in strategy or direction versus, uh, you know, trying to do things a totally different way, even if it didn't match my Uh, my own philosophy because I'm taking over a successful program. Now, luckily, you know, myself and Coach Logie were best friends and, you know, he really created an environment where this was a partnership. And the reason why I would even, you know, still be in this spot after eight years at Whitworth and be happy with my job is because I felt a a whole lot of intrinsic value that, you know, I was playing a, a, a role. And so a lot of what we did was already in line with what I what I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, last year I looked at, you know, what are the, what are the 15% opportunity, you know, that this program has to get better. That might be a little bit different and also might fit, um, my personality. So, um, you know, our offense has been, has really carried us over this last decade. Mm -hmm. Um, we've had some phenomenal offensive players. And I think coach Logie's a, uh, you know, great, uh, strategist as far as offensive, uh, philosophy. And I learned a ton through him and, um, and I wanted to maintain a lot of that. Um, and I felt like defensively are op- That's where we had the most opportunity. Mm-hmm. And also where I felt like, um, I could put my own, my own personal mark. So, uh, we, I felt like we did make a lot of strides last year defensively. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, re- I really focused on, on toughness and, um, and uh, playing together and having some pride on the defensive end. And I think it, I think it made a a difference and did allow us to have a much stingier defense overall uh, and prepare us to be able to, you know, win those games in the, in the NCAA tournament. So I think, I think that's probably where I put most of my focus, but we've got a great culture and um, maintaining the culture uh, you know, the, the tradition that our, our players have, it's probably the biggest part mm-hmm. of my my job, as far as maintaining maintaining the success that this program has had.
0: No, now culture is this buzzword that everyone uses nowadays, from the culture of like your local coffee shop and how it's run to the culture of the San Antonio Spurs and the Golden State Warriors. It can mean very different things for every group, every organization, every team. What is the culture of the Whitworth program, and just how do you define or look for that buy in? that so many coaches talk about, Hey, we wanted to see like the buy-in from our guys of the culture, just like, what does that actually mean to you of the buy-in for the, for the parts of the culture that you guys are setting?
1: Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think there's a few things, uh, that are really important. I think it really is, uh, team over, over me philosophy. I mean, I think when we're recruiting and the, the type of character student athletes that we have, I mean, our, our players really want to win championships and that's mm-hmm. first and foremost, they want to win championships. So I think that's a, a extremely important part of our culture is we don't have a lot of uh, selfish or uh, you know, individuals who have other agendas. I want our players to achieve individually as well. And, uh, and I, I, I'm not saying that isn't important, but um, you know, wanting to win is a huge part of it. It sounds simple, but not everybody actually acts in that manner. I think having players that have a passion for basketball and, and work hard um, is a huge part of our, our culture. I think Division three is phenomenal in that we really do allow, a, you know, I'm speaking generically, but there's a much better focus than at some other levels as far as, Um, balancing athletics and academics and other social interests and whatnot. But in general, I think our culture, we've got hoop junkies, you know, we've got Mm -hmm. guys that they might be getting, you know, spending their summer doing uh, an internship that then is giving them a, you know, a job offer at the end of the summer, you know, but at the same time they're finding ways to get up 20,000 makes in their, you know, before or after their, their internship throughout the summer, you know? So you got guys that are working really hard. And I think those are probably two of the, the the one, the first ones that come to mind as far as, you know, what, what sets our, our culture apart, the hard work and also the unselfishness.
0: Well, you really put your, your new defensive ideas and philosophy and just, uh, your spin on the culture to test this year, as you guys had just an absolutely loaded, insane non-conference schedule. I mean, you know, this is an idea for D3 Hoops.com, but like would they if, if they graded schedules like with the with, with letter grades, you guys would have had an A plus strike the schedule. I mean, you played Claremont McKenna to start, who is an NCAA tournament team almost every year. Trinity, Texas is always really good. St. Thomas, Minnesota, who just for the listeners who don't know, they're jumping up from D three to D one this year to the Summit League. Uh UW O'Clair, who's always good the yac Carroll, which is an NAIA school, John John Carroll, Worcester, Uh, You played Whitman twice in conference and then Linfield in conference as well. I guess just for a lack of a better question or just inability to phrase it better, why did you schedule such an insane uh, list of teams uh, this season in your first year?
1: Um I think I was more will. I think it was a better idea when the winning law wins and losses were, were going to be on potentially on Logie's <laughs> <laughs> resume, but no, that's, that's joking. I think a lot of it was, was definitely the response to, uh, you know, being left out of the tournament the year before mm-hmm. because we didn't win the AQ when subjectively we definitely b- believe we should have been in, um, we were a caliber team. So it was, it was a response to try and meet the metrics that are required to get an at large bid, and, uh, luckily it, it did work out cause unfortunately we didn't get the AQ by winning our conference championship. And even still with all that insane schedule, I was, you know, our team, we were pretty worried that we weren't going to get in that large. Mm-hmm. Um, I, our locker room after that, the conference championship loss was really like the end of a season locker room. Um, cause we didn't, we didn't know that we would get that opportunity. We felt right. like maybe we were a loss, one loss too many, um, and it, and it might keep us out. So, um, but it, you know, strategically, we wanted a schedule really tough. We always want to do that we can give, give ourselves a a test and challenge to get better and um, b you know try and meet the metrics to give ourselves an opportunity to get an at large bid if we're not able to get the AQ. Um, so it's it's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, it's it, it was real. You know, a lot of times you can't put together that kind of schedule as hard as you try. Right. Yeah. Um, and like I said, we were we were lucky enough that St. Thomas agreed to come out and play us. We had Mary Washington came mm-hmm. out and played us. With a Very very good team. Uh, you know, and then we and then we were able to put together those a couple of non conference tournaments that had really high caliber opponents. So yeah. sometimes they just fall into play. And and you know, uh, Claremont was able to come out and play us sometimes they just fall into place. Yeah. Like it works out. Um, but we don't have a lot of opportunities, you know, to be choosers for our home games. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's location. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's hard to get, it's hard to get teams to travel out. So we can't always get, um, all the teams that we want. And we're very grateful for the ones that do make the trip. Um, you know, and I, and I, you know, as a pitch, I think in a, on a regular year, it's a pretty neat experience to, to play in our arena. We've got, you know, traditionally we're top five to top 10 in the country in home attendance. And we've got great fan support and it's a fun arena environment. And so I think, you know, we've had, we had uh, old Westbury out here a few years ago and it's it's quite a few years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago now. And their players just absolutely enjoyed uh, the whole experience. They were taking selfies with the fans in the game after us uh, when we play, play them, played them, played the night after us because they were just really enjoying our crowd. So uh, it's That's a fun awesome. experience. I, I encourage uh, any team to get, to, uh, get their, their team out of that whatever comfort zone they are, come, come experience in Northwest.
0: So you mentioned the crowd, great crowd, big arena. And also, maybe just because Spokane is such a basketball-crazed place, you guys sometimes have games on cable, and with that, it brings in professional broadcasters, and it brings in the replay monitor. Now, the replay monitor gets a lot of uh, criticism in major college basketball and the NBA for how frequently they go do replay reviews, but you're one of the very few teams that even has the possibility of doing that in Division Three. When you know that your game's going to be on cable and you're going to have a chance to to do the review, are you doing a dedicated segment in practice where you practice, you know, just tossing the ball out of bounds and guys immediately freak out and start asking for a replay, like like they do in the in in the NBA?
1: No, I think it's become with the challenge stuff. It's become a little bit uh, uh, comical in the NBA. Uh, I don't think even if we do have a replay in this, there's you know at the NCAA level, there's a lot more uh specific rules and it's mm-hmm. not like you as a coach can you know throw a flag on the 50 yard <laughs> line you know it's not the same so we don't really have the control over that um it's very rare that they've been able to use the replay at ours but um honestly there's been there have been quite a few times over the years where I would have appreciated that ability mm-hmm. um but it can definitely become paralyzing is I think some, you know, a lot of people hold that opinion in different sports where it's maybe used a little bit too much.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm always curious about this coach. Coaches, it seems like, try out so many plays. You have notebooks of stuff. You're always talking, plays, schemes, things you want to try. Just in your experience or, or in your opinion, you try a play, whether it's an out of bounds set or a quick hitter or or a zone or man to man defense. You know, sometimes you could have the most perfect execution, or just whatever, or whatever it may be. It may not be working. It'd be the best idea in the world, but it's just not working. How do you keep trusting things as a, as a coach when the result isn't there? Uh, and just keep, you know, just does that talent of trusting the process of something before sometimes you say, "Hey, this isn't working. We have to we have to bail on it."
1: That's a good question. I mean, you know. Pretty traditionally in coaching, I think when you're, you're looking at, you've implemented a strategy and it's not working, then you have to figure out, well, are we doing something incorrectly or do we have the wrong people doing it? Mm. And so that's, you know, maybe it's a play and you're like, we really should be getting this look. And then you really evaluate, well, our timing's not right. How we're, our screening's not good. You know, um. Hopefully, it's not that we just didn't know what we were doing and you know didn't execute at all. Um, but those are things that you know you can improve and correct on. And then, and then after that, you look at well, do we have the right people in the right place? Or mm-hmm. you know, you know, is there? And that could that could honestly mean, you know, do we have a person on the bench when they should be in the game? You know, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh,
1: then, then you look at it from a personnel, and sometimes you just get a feel that. Even if it was a great play, even if it you know, even if from a coaching standpoint you think, "Hey, that's genius! That's a great play," you know, uh, there's no no use in spinning your wheels any longer on it. Then you move on. Then you move on because it doesn't always fit the personality of what your team is, or um, you know, there might be, for example, uh, there's great NBA plays that don't translate to the college level because of spacing and mostly spacing yeah. um uh so you know you might have a great idea and uh and it is in that arena a great play um but you you can't really you try it out and then you realize well it's not as great for us so you move <laughs> on um and i think the adaptability is important when i was at at oakland university you know i was under uh coach greg campy and he's uh, last I checked, was the third longest tenured coach in Division One. So mm-hmm. Shushkevich, Bayheim, and Greg Campy, the longest coaches at their spot, and um, phenomenal offensive coach again. And I was always impressed by uh, his adaptability from year to year at really putting in offensive schemes and being willing to change offensive schemes based on his personnel. And again, Matt Loki was is also very much like that, and I, I hope that I am as well. So I think having adaptability to what your personnel is, is important. So you, you, you know, if you look at my playbook going into a season versus what it is when we reach the NCAA tournament, you're going to, you're going to see it. You're going to see a lot of plays that have been Mm scrapped. Yeah, um, for sure. Things that that don't, that don't end up being our go-tos.
0: So it's Monday morning, you're sitting down, you're at your desk, you have your assistant coaches around you and it's time to formulate a practice plan. Are you one of the coaches who schedules every second in practice to be the most efficient? And just also just when something's going on in practice and you know you're the pick and roll defense part of practice isn't working, or do you start freaking out like, hey, this is going over, we're losing this, or or do you kind of just say this is what's most important and as long as it takes we can bump something else?
1: Um, I'm more inclined to get I'm more inclined to spend more time on it mm-hmm. and bump something else if I really think that's important, um, you know, I, I am a pretty meticulous planner, but then I don't get too, too caught up in, you know,
0: sticking with the schedule.
1: Yeah. And, and, and not, not being adaptable. Um, so there's definitely times where, you know, whoever's running the clock will be like, Hey, it's, you know, I pause it for a while.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, a part of that is because philosophically I believe in, um, I, I enjoy a creative process and I enjoy finding solutions. And that's something I preach with my team all the time. I want to find solutions. And, uh, and I think that our players need to be, uh, you know, an important part of that process. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're, if we're having trouble, maybe it's an example like you, I think we're alluding to is like maybe we're, we're trying to guard an action. It's in a scout for somebody and we're mm-hmm. trying to guard an action. Um, on that and it just doesn't feel right um or the players are having difficulty executing it you know i like to ask especially my my seniors or my leaders or whoever you know whoever has that that trust you know well what are you seeing out there and what do you feel and i'm not going to bend entirely if it's something Mm -hmm. i believe that we have to do but i like to have I like to have everyone involved in that process at times so that there's, there's buy-in and complete understanding. So sometimes that will require more time than what I had on the schedule when you run into a problem and you need to find a solution.
0: Interesting. Coach, I have a couple more questions before we get to the phone. That's at the end. Really appreciate the time. The first week of March, you guys do get that at-large bid. That Monday, you, you see Whitworth pop up on the screen for the selection show. All of a sudden, you find out you're being sent to Texas. And right around that that same time, and maybe even a little bit earlier for you guys out on the West Coast, we start hearing about the coronavirus, and we start seeing what the potential damage it could do here in the U.S. When was the first time that you heard the word coronavirus, and just were there any precautions that you guys were talking about potentially taking that week for the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament?
1: Um. Honestly, I had such blinders on. If I'm being real, <laughs> I really didn't know how serious it was at that time mm-hmm. because I was so, so into us finishing the season that I had kind of ignored current events to a certain degree. That I didn't know the, or the urgency of it, um, but it really did ramp up at that time, and um, there weren't a lot of specifics going into that first weekend. Mm-hmm. where we were even just like the, the, you know, you talk about like there being a flare up in Seattle early on. Well, we're five hours from
0: there, right? Yeah. You no,
1: know? it's not, it's not the same place. And, um, and we didn't, we didn't get hit like they did originally. So again, the urgency wasn't, wasn't quite there. Um, it wasn't really until, you know, I believe it was Hopkins, John Hopkins, um, didn't have fans and a few, and maybe another place didn't have fans, which was decided like the Thursday before the Friday game. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, So we were already in Texas at that point when things really started to, to flare up. And then, you know, obviously it just dominoed from there. So really uh, for me, my awareness was during that first weekend Mm -hmm. of how, you know, how, how much it could potentially affect and ultimately did affect, you know, our tournament.
0: And you win those two games, two really good games down, down in Texas. You're now undefeated in the NCAA tournament with, with your first two wins as a head coach. And you find out that your next opponent is the number one team in the country, Swarthmore, who lost in the national championship the year before. They were number one the whole year, featured in the New York Times, kind of like the, the darling of Division three basketball in, in a lot of ways. You find out you're, you're going there. Did you guys make it there? And just when did you find out that the season was unfortunately going to be canceled?
1: No, uh, we didn't make it there. We um, we got through – I think we were leaving on a Thursday morning is what we were supposed to leave. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, on Wednesday, that's when there was a lot of talk. I want to say Wednesday was might have been when
0: – Yeah, um, Wednesday night, yeah.
1: When some tournaments cl- canceled and things like that. And so we woke up to Thursday morning, you know, conversations with administration concerned at our schools, their school, uh, concerned about things. And, um, we, we actually still gathered as a team. We were going to practice before we left. And, um, cause it's an all day travel for us to get, mm-hmm. to get to Philadelphia. And, um, And we practiced and we literally packed up and we were about to, we were waiting for the bus to show up. And we, we got a call from the NCAA, which didn't say it was canceled, but said, uh, don't get on the bus. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just wait for some further instruction. Uh So we, we sat as a team for about an hour, um, until it was the point where like, we have to get on this bus or we'll miss this flight. Right. Yeah. And, um, and our athletic director was able to get in touch with somebody at the championship committee and they said, don't, don't get on. And, uh, so at that point I didn't know if it was just going to be, I may hope and thought was that it was just a postponement of some kind. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we waited about, and then, so we sent our guys home or to their dorms or whatever. And, about fifteen minutes later, they came out with a a tweet that the tournament was cancelled right yeah um, so that that was how we found out and obviously kind of shocking and and disappointing and and difficult I fast forward to you know the new start of the new school year and having our guys back on campus and'm like we haven't even been together since that time frame yeah it's <laughs> it's amazing
0: it's it's also amazing just how how many of the biggest news stories it feels like you first hear about it on Twitter. You see a tweet, like I saw a tweet from TMZ that Kobe Bryant had passed away. I saw that tweet. You mentioned that the tournament was canceled. It was tweeted out that Rudy Gobert tested positive. What was it like as a coach? Like you, like you don't get a phone call, either you see the tweet or one of your guys is like, Hey, you know, they tweeted out. It's over.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really, it was difficult. Um, you know, I, I think at the moment again, I was really disappointed because I thought, I, th- I, I thought or hoped that you know, that it would be a, a couple weeks or a month. You mm-hmm. know, I thought that there would be an opportunity to maybe still finish it. That's where those are my thoughts at that time. Obviously, given everything that's happened, you know, ultimately them not leaving us hanging was probably a good thing. Yeah. Um, but you know it was frustrating because there's not a lot that you can say. Um, yeah. It's an unprecedented situation. Other than take care of yourself and you know do what you're supposed to do right now. Um, so oh, you know in the end it's a it's an opportunity to teach those life lessons. It's actual life lessons now and not just yeah. a representative thing from the basketball court that you hope tra- translates for your student athletes. Right. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. And we were you know we were disappointed because. As good as Swarthmore was and one hundred percent you know respect for what kind of team they had, we were excited about the matchup yeah you know our guys are we were we were playing free and having fun feeling kind of redeemed from getting that large berth and felt like we were peaking and in a lot of ways as good as they are felt like you know we were excited about the the, the way that we matched up with them um, and Quite honestly, if I'm being real, if if we're going to go on the road and then we're playing a team and we're not allowed to have fans, you know, that would only be an advantage for uh, you guys. Yeah, to us, at least not a disadvantage mm-hmm. of playing in front of their. Fans. So um so I, I wish we would have had from the competitive, you know, spirit in me wishes, we would have had the opportunity. We obviously could have, you know, you know. Things could have easily not gone the way we had hoped, but we we sure wish we would have had the opportunity to to try.
0: Well, for all fans of Division Three basketball, that was one of the the matchups circled for for everyone the East Coast, West Coast, Swarthmore, Whitworth. Hopefully, uh, either you guys will get a chance in in the coming years to fly out and play them in Philly, or or they'll take the trip to you guys to to Spokane. But yeah, that that would have been an, an incredible matchup, just with two two great teams, coach. Really appreciate all the time so far. I want to wrap up here with five rapid-fire questions to end the podcast. All right. Number one, what is your favorite drill as a coach?
1: Oh boy, favorite drill? You'd probably have to ask my players. <laughs> <laughs> what are my go-to's? Um, uh, we've got a really we've got a transition drill um, that we do, which is pretty standard. Kind of like five on four type transition, okay. um, but then we we've done a lot of different variations of it where we add um, we'll actually add us we'll add a sixth player on the way back in the interesting in the backcourt so that and I, and we don't do our press break we let the guys figure out how to break it um, so that we can actually do some uh, you know play against the real pressure and then once they get in the over the court um into into the front court, then it's five on five again mm-hmm. that's a drill that I really like. I think you know is us being creative uh, or trying to be creative at at creating some disadvantaged situations because we see so many presses, especially in our in our league over the years.
0: yeah, that sounds like a plan to to confront Whitman and just speaking no, of Whitman for those who don't know or aren't a part of the rivalry, how would you describe in three words the Whitman Whitworth rivalry?
1: Um, I think it's pretty, it's pretty intense. And, and, um, you know, I think, uh, I think it's extremely competitive. It's been extremely competitive. And, um, let's see another word. Um, Sometimes heated. And that's, mm-hmm. that's partly partially what makes a good rivalry. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you, you got to draw a line and, um, I like being civil. So, uh, <laughs> with, with my opponent. Um, and so, but maybe when the, maybe when the clock is running, you know, it's a, it's all out war. So it's been a lot of fun. I enjoyed it.
0: Do you have any coaching idols or mentors or just guys? that you just really love watching where it's, Hey, they're playing on a Tuesday night. I'm making sure that, that, that I'm at least trying to catch part of the game when you get home.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, Brad Stevens has been a big one. And, um, when I was at Oakland, I, uh, based on recommendations from my mentor at, at Oakland, uh, Jeff Tungy, who's actually the head women's coach. Now he was our associate head coach. Um, I got hooked up with, butler uh going down and just studying butler because he wow. told me they're just great people and it was actually like i did that for a couple of years i'd go down and just watch practices and oh. go out to lunch with the coaches and it was like brad's first year awesome just wow. awesome people Just awesome guy um and i'm not as in touch with him right now obviously he's got some more important things going on um <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, he's a person that I really admire not just from his basketball IQ but really from his character because he's truly a good person um, and definitely someone that, uh, you know, rightfully so, like you can learn a, a lot watching his, watching his stuff.
0: So. 100%. Do you have any pet peeves as a coach?
1: Uh, yeah, I have. But if you ask my players, I, I can't stand when players uh, don't take good enough care of the equipment. Okay. <laughs> so here's a pet peeve. I walk in a gym and there's just a ball laying in the corner. Uh
0: huh. <laughs> <laughs> and you it's really it. a
1: pet peeve. Like I just can't. It's you know it gets under my skin. Uh-huh. So uh, I think I think that'd be a, an answer that my players would say. Yeah, that truly is a pet peeve. And the last That's question
0: a, here, Coach. If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change?
1: Mm, if I could change one rule, um. I'll tell you one that I I don't know if I I'll tell you one that I appreciate they changed. I appreciate that they put in uh, the the charge are, uh, uh, circle uh-huh. and that the, it, it's really cl- I think cleaned up the block charge call a ton. I can't yeah. stand going to high school games where there's no block charge circle and mm-hmm. people are standing under the rim and somehow picking up a charge. <laughs> um, I think block charge is a fifty fifty call in general. Mm-hmm. I don't know which way it was supposed to go half of the time. So the fact that we're allowed to go vertical and use that, um, charge circle, I think that's cleaned up our, our game a lot. Um, I like that they, um, are moving the three point line back. I think Mm -hmm. that'll just open up spacing and allow, uh, some more opportunity for offensive creativity. Uh, so I don't know if I can think of something that I'd love to change. Otherwise I, you know, I, some consistency on, um, on physicality in the post i think mm-hmm. they have changed it over the years you know a few years ago there was you weren't allowed to touch anybody now sometimes you can but yeah. there's definitely a real advantage for the offensive player um you know to just dislodge so i don't know the solution but i don't think that it's been i don't think that they have made it as consistent as I would like to be in the post
0: interesting well, coach, really, really appreciate all the time, as always, on the double double. we give the last word to the guests and to the coaches, so if anything you want to say or shout out to the great people of spokane, Washington.
1: yeah, oh to the great people of Spokane, just you know appreciate your guys' support. I mean, we have phenomenal community involvement um you know as a last word though, I just I'll thank you you know for taking the time. I really appreciate it and i I always appreciate anyone who sheds light on. Uh, Division three athletics. I think uh, we often get overshadowed, and I understand mm-hmm. that. Uh, but there's some great things uh, that our student athletes are are doing and should be recognized uh, for. And so, any any time that you can, um, you know, highlight uh, what our student athletes are doing, I think it's great. So I appreciate that.
0: Really appreciate it, Coach. And best of luck this year for the Whitworth Pirates.
1: Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks.
0: Thank you to Coach Chablonski for all the time. Really enjoyed the conversation. I, I definitely learned a lot just from talking to him. Before we, before we close out here, just want a couple just just want to mention a couple of things from the world of sports this past weekend. Game three, Celtics against the Heat. Jalen Brown played just awesome. He was the star of the game. Hayward came back for the Celtics down 2-0. He was super effective, really good. And you can kind of see how. Just with him on the court, how Miami's rotations had to change, how they were really respecting him, even though he hasn't played in five or six weeks, that he's still an all-star caliber player. And then it, it kind of changes the whole dynamic on the floor if you're swinging the ball to him on the wing or him on, in the corner, and it's Gordon Hayward, who's an all-star, and not Semi ogile who's a role player, or Brad Wanamaker, who's a role player. It's different. You could just tell it. It opened up the floor a little bit more for some driving lanes. Boston dominated that game in the paint, and maybe that will be something going forward because Adebayo is a solid rim protector, but he you, you can't block every single shot. And especially because Tatum and Brown and Smart and Walker and Hayward, except for Walker, all those guys are six four. Smart six four. Hayward, Brown, and Tatum are all six eight. Like. They can finish over Adebayo, and also it's a runs of risk of him potentially getting in, into foul trouble as, as these games go on. So so that's something to, to look for. That series is 2-1, to one, and the next game is Wednesday night. They're going to try to um, cat, help the, have the Western Conference Finals catch up so they're at the same pace. And speaking of the Western Conference Finals, last night, whoo, what a game. The Nuggets battled the entire game, battled all the way back. Jokic scored the last 11 points for Denver, just three-pointer layup, free throws, just doing all the awesome Nikola Jokic things that we all uh, just love to see and love to watch. And Anthony Davis, on the other end, was doing all the Anthony Davis things that people said, this dude might actually be the most talented player in the NBA. He's not the best player, but when he's playing like that, where he scores the last 10 for the Lakers, he might be the most talented in the entire league and he hit a beautiful three-pointer to win the game buzzer beater shouted out kobe at uh when he was running to his teammates after he made it you know people can talk about what went wrong on the play why Plumlee and jeremy grant switched and why Jokic garnered the inbounder and then the first pass look mike malone chose not to call a timeout it was probably hey two seconds if you call a timeout there, you give the Lakers a chance to draw up a specific play down one to get LeBron, McGee, Davis towards the basket for a lob. Or you say risk it. It was a really tough angle for Rondo to, to make a pass. You put Jokic on the ball. You put Plumlee in to try to just uh, prevent a lob towards the rim. And look, Anthony Davis hit a contested three-pointer to win the game. That's the Nuggets' whole strategy. That's how teams have been playing the Lakers all playoffs, which is try not to let Davis towards the rim and force him to take contested jumpers, which they did, and Davis hit that one. Because if Anthony Davis is going to make those shots, there's no chance the Nuggets are going to win anyway. So that was just a strategy, and Davis hit a phenomenal, phenomenal shot. It's going to be an iconic shot in NBA history. Because it's a buzzer beater with the Lakers, playoff buzzer beater. There's only been so many of those. So, you know, if I'm the Nuggets, I say, hey, we played with them. We came one shot away from winning this game. They're so much they're really good with their backs against the wall. This series, I don't think, is over yet. Uh so it'll definitely be really interesting to see how it goes forward. Game three for that is tomorrow is uh is not tomorrow, Tuesday night, uh the twenty second, probably at like eight thirty or nine, because of the West Coast factor. And then lastly, the Yankees close to playoff spot, my Yankees. It's been a tough year for us, up and down, but uh, we're in the playoffs. We're going to be in the bubble and uh, just really excited to watch some Yankee baseball this, this next month. So that'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at dbl underscore podcast. We'll be back later this week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.